this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for personal readiness to exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. As difficult as the financial crisis that we're going through may feel right now, there is one silver lining. And that is that for a lot of businesses, they will emerge from this period a much stronger business. And unfortunately, some of your competitors may not. This will be a reckoning for a lot of businesses that are not built to sell, that are too dependent on a single customer or haven't figured out their cash flow model. And as a result, we're gonna see businesses fail And if you're one of the businesses that thrive and at least survive through this time, you'll be much better placed to come out of it with a lot less competition. And that's exactly the place that Brian Clayton found himself in. In the 2008 crisis, he was challenged like never before in his company, but managed to bring his team together, as he will describe on this episode, and work through the crisis and ultimately built a sellable company, one that was acquired by one of the largest landscaping businesses in the United States. Here to tell you his entire story is Brian Clayton. Brian Clayton, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Awesome. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So tell me a little bit about the lawn care business, because when I think of lawn care, I don't think of a business. I usually think a guy with a tra- like a tractor or a guy with a you know, push mower. I don't think of it as a business to say, but, but you built a significant business here. Yeah. So it's an $80 billion industry in the United States. And That's incredible. 90% of it is probably dominated by what I call chuck in a truck. Uh, chuck Peter, in a truck. Yeah. Peter in a pickup. Yeah. And so, yeah, to your point, most of it is done by owner operators. It's highly fragmented. Uh, and that's mostly in the residential space. So somebody needing their lawn mowed once a week, once every two weeks, they typically get matched up with somebody who is an owner operator to come cut their grass for them. Uh, yeah. But there is a big industry around landscape maintenance, around commercial properties, apartments, office parks, airports, things of that nature that require a little bit more uh, economic resources to, to pull off. You know, there's some cash flow. Uh, and equipment and, and some, so, so there's a lot more of a investment assets up front. So bigger companies do play in that space. And so, okay. And that's helpful. And, and that's where Peachtree played that, in a commercial. We side started of off, uh, started off just me and a push mower. Uh, and I would mow my neighbor's yards and, uh, all through high school. And, uh, by the time I was starting college, I had five employees 
And by the time I got done with college, I had 25 people working for me. I realized, wow, wow I, I never really wanted to cut grass my whole life. That wasn't what I was going to school for. But I started to quickly realize, I, I, man, I, I was making more money uh, running this little business than I was ever going to make, uh, you know, going into the job market. So I just, I just kept running with it. And, what were you uh, making as, like, when you were finished college, like, what were you clearing in a good year as a 21-year-old? So it's, 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 it's subjective because I was pumping every dollar I could back in the business. I took on okay. no, no outside investors. And so if I had an extra 10 grand, I bought a truck. Uh, and, but to, to, to answer your question, uh, easily six figures. Uh, yeah. I, and my, my counterparts that were also going to business school, uh, where I attended college at a state school here in Tennessee, I mean, they were starting, this was 2002, three, they were starting making 30 grand, 40 grand. And I thought, right. here you are six figures, <laughs> like, nope. <laughs> and to be honest, didn't love the business. It's hard business. Uh, it's, it's a tough cutthroat industry, hard business to run, but I just saw a better, uh, better future for myself, just being an entrepreneur than I did uh, going to work for somebody. So how does it go from 25 guys and gals cutting grass to what, what was your shift or what was the, the trigger that shifted you into the commercial space? Yeah, so it took me a long time to learn this stuff on my own. I was a, I was a young cat and I, I wasn't open to feedback as much as I, as I should have been. And so I had to learn a lot of this stuff through trial and error and, and over time, uh, learning how to delegate better, how to hire people better. Um, and, and really kind of the, the inflection point would have been when I took on my first salesperson and began to train them with how I sold the first million dollars a year in business and train them in my way. And then I was able to replicate that to two, three, four, five salespeople uh, over the next five years. That is what was the secret we, you talked to them about selling? Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, an, it's, for me, it was very nuanced in terms of knowing the industry and knowing what my particular company did better than our competitors and, and communicating that throughout the sales process. Um, and I could never really figure out in those early days, if it was better to hire somebody with sales background experience or, or hire somebody with, with industry experience. Um, I never could find that silver bullet of somebody that had the perfect combination of both. And, and, uh, I, I never really, in, in, in over 15 years, I never really got to a point where I felt comfortable one way or the other. I had people that I started that were, that came from both. And for us, there's so much nuance in the green industry and the landscaping maintenance industry that it takes a long time to understand the horticultural piece of it, uh, the business piece of it, uh, the quality aspect of it. And, and, uh, Get, taking at what I had learned over six, five, six years and, and putting that into my new sales person's head was one of the hardest things I had to learn from my, on my own in the early days. But what it wasn't helped? until well, that point until we really started to grow. Okay. So, so I think a lot of business owners listening to this would be in the same camp. Either they, you know, they thought about hiring salespeople. Uh, they've got a couple, maybe they're underperforming. Uh, they'd love to get some tips and tricks. What did you find, you know, albeit by trial and error worked with with hiring and training salespeople yeah the first thing is you can't the thing i learned the hard way was you can't motivate anybody you have to hire motivated people and make sure you don't demotivate them 
And I learned that the hard way. And, you know, I would hire somebody with 20, 10 or 20 years industry experience. And they, they worked for maybe a competitor. And I just thought maybe because they worked for this competitor who was crushing it, maybe they would crush it, bring them on. And I quickly realized, man, you know, I'm having to keep my thumb on them to make all of their cold calls or I'm having to extract stuff out of them, like pulling teeth just to get done what we need to get done on a weekly or monthly basis. And I would stick with that person for months, years, uh, uh, because I just felt like I had too much uh, sunk cost in them. Mm-hmm. And it took me years to realize when I didn't have the right person, then it was time to, it was time to uh, let them go and, and, and try to get, interview somebody else for that role. How did you evaluate someone's inner motivation? Like in an interview, like you and I are having right now, like what, what would you ask them to measure their inner motivation or inner drive? Yeah, you really, you know, there's so much, so much skill and finesse and nuance around that, right? How do you, how do you find that out when you're sitting across from somebody and, and how do you make sure they're not blowing smoke? And for me, I would try to tie as much of our conversation around evidence as I could, you know, tell me about a time when you had no leads in a given week and how you just went out and hustled one up and how you closed the deal. Like walk me through that. Like tell me a story around that. And usually you can suss out if somebody's ever done that before because a good salesperson Mm -hmm. will be able to do that. And, uh, and, and, and as I, you know, I hired probably well into several thousand people over the 15 years running that business ended up with 150 uh, when it was acquired and I uh, had a sales team of five or six uh, at any given time. So I got pretty good at it as time went on, but in the beginning, man, I really sucked. Uh, and, 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 and the other, the other thing I, 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 I mistake I made was in the early days when, when my support team was just me, a secretary, uh, maybe one other person, I'm hiring my first sales guy. Uh, I made the mistake of having them uh, be over account management and sales. And for years, I I suffered that because they were constantly being pulled between taking care of clients that they had relationships with and going out and hunting new clients. It wasn't until 10 years in that I realized I had to have an account manager and had to have a sales prospector, had to separate those roles. Big mistake I made cost me a lot of a lot of growth and a lot of success if i had figured that out day one if i had known then what i know now i could have gotten done in one year what took me five wow so you're a big believer it sounds like in separating the roles of hunter and farmer for me in that in that business yes because you're constantly if if your job is to go out and hunt new business you're you're always going to be letting the, the the current book of business suffer how did you guys juggle as you move more to the commercial space? How did you juggle cash flow? Because I'm imagining commercial jobs. Now you've got bigger equipment. You've got guys who pay in 30, 60, 90 days as opposed to cash when you show up with the truck. Um, really how did you, difficult. How did you manage that? that? Yeah, very difficult business for, for, for cash flow because at, first off, it's seasonal. So your, your costs spike right. I didn't even think about throughout that, yeah. the year. Um, and secondly, uh, if you're trying to run a business that big, lawn and mowing business is the best business in the world for a one or two man operation. Uh, but once you start, start trying to build a big business around it, there's a big gap between here and here. And, and it's, a, it's a long, hard road to get there. And cash flow is a big piece of that because the big boys, uh, the multi-billion dollar companies can fund that, that, that time better than you can. And so, and, and in larger companies, large commercial real estate owners, 
take pride in how long they're able to stretch out their vendors. <laughs> they love to be able to sit on your money for 90 days. Meanwhile, you're suffering trying to figure out how to pay the light bill and how to make payroll that week, and, and they're sitting on your money for 90 days. And so the ability to do that is almost table stakes uh, for a six-figure contract or a million-dollar contract. The ability to cash flow throughout the year is almost the price to entry to play in that game. So how'd you do it? Well, I, I suffered through it. And, and the way, the, the, what kept me in business and kept me afloat was I built it debt-free. So I, I didn't have lease payments. I didn't have mortgage or uh, car notes or truck notes or equipment uh, payments. And I, I built that business uh, only on the revenue that it generated. And so I didn't have this huge outlay uh, that I had to service, whereas my competitors did. And so that was one way we were able to have a competitive advantage that we built over time was that we owned every piece of equipment we had. And, and at one point in time, probably had 300 lawnmowers that, you know, cost 10 grand. And, and so to be able to own uh, those assets, and yeah, they, it's amazing how fast they go down in value. It sucks. But to own and repair and, and stretch out the life of those assets through things like preventative maintenance and having in-house mechanics and things like that, we were able to forge a competitive advantage and be able to, to, to withstand the, the highs and lows of the cash flow. The other thing is it got me through the 2008 meltdown too. Uh, I would have gotten wiped out had I had several hundred thousand dollars a month in debt service uh, through that time. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting because a lot of people are right now dealing with another 2008, right? The economic turmoil. Uh, as we record this, we're in the throes of this COVID-19 thing. Um, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs who are going through, in their mind, the end of the world? Like they don't know where they're going to make payroll. They don't know where they're going to get their next uh, chunk of cash. Right. Um, no customers are paying. What can you share an experience of what it was like for you in 2008? Yeah. Yeah. 2008 was rough in my business because it was tied a lot to new construction. It was tied to a lot to a commercial clientele that weren't paying their bills. And the, what got me through that was being somewhat prepared for it, not being overextended, which is not good advice right now if you find yourself in this situation. Yeah. But we had a good, strong company culture that I was able to rely on. And, and by that, what I mean by that is, we brought our entire family together, uh, the, the 100 plus people working in, in for us and said, listen, we're going to do everything we can do to not miss payroll. But I'm going to need these three things from all of you. Uh, basically, for all of us, it means we're going to all work twice as hard for less money. It sucks, but it's what we're going to have to do to get through this together. I don't want to cut one person. I don't want to cut one head. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to miss a check for anybody but here's what I'm going to need from you guys and gals. And, and, it, and it basically boils down to working harder for less money and cutting hours and making sacrifices for the benefit of, of the whole. And if, if anybody's not, not, uh, not on board with this, I don't know how long it's going to take, six months, a year. Um, if you're not on board, then I don't expect you to go through this with us, but this is what it's going to require. And, and whatever that is for your business, it could be if you have people making $1,000 a week, it might be they only make $400 a week. But you're going to service that throughout, throughout this period. And you have to figure out whatever that number is. The second thing is, is uh, I'm, I'm actually a, a mentor at a, at a place called the Entrepreneur Center here. And so I've been counseling quite a bit of guys and gals. And 
some of them have this false hope that there's a big bailout coming. That, hey, listen, everybody's in, is, is, is similarly situated. We're all going to have to uh, go through this. So I'm not really worried about it. And I'm, I'm sad to tell them that it's not coming. Uh, you're, the federal government is not going to make your payroll. Uh, whatever assistance they're going to be able to give you is so minimal that it's, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be a drop in the bucket. And it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the United States government right now has been arguing in Congress for, for over a week on trying to get $1,000 to everybody. You know, what's $1,000 going to do to your average household? A week, maybe? You know, whatever that looks mm -hmm. like for them, that's how, what your business bailout is going to be. So don't place any false hope in that. That's not coming. Uh, and in the obvious things, you got to figure out what, all, what, are the, what are the expenses you have to service that you cannot uh, let go late. And that's probably, you know, mortgages, rent payments, equipment payments, and then on down the list. Um, third thing, your fourth thing, don't roll over. Don't give up. Fight until there is nothing left, until, until there is no other option, no other card to play, because this is your livelihood. You've spent however long building this thing. Fight until it's, until it's all over. Because a lot, of, a lot of guys and gals are, are wanting to just roll over. Um, and we're three weeks into this thing. so. That's my advice, having gone through a similar situation in 2008. In 2008, you know, a lot of people didn't, this is affecting everybody, but in 2008, if you were in construction, real estate, in, in any kind of business like that, it's like somebody took a water faucet and turned it off. Everything stopped. And so this was similar if you were in those businesses. It's almost, it's almost identical. Yeah, if you're in a restaurant, for I mean, many businesses, but anything right. service is like zero. Yeah, right. so it's it's very very difficult. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Having gone through it, it's uh, it's helpful to know there's there's also a light at the end of the tunnel. It totally. does, and and a lot of your competitors aren't going to be around when when, yeah. when you come out on this. And and uh, if you can survive, you will ride the next wave. That 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 is so that that gives hope to to entrepreneurs that can knuckle down and get through it. That's really well said. I want to turn my attention to something completely different, um, which is how you differentiated your service from the other 50 guys and gals who cut lawn. Yeah. So, you know, there, this is a commoditized business, right? Uh, lawn care is very commoditized. So what did you do to, to make yourselves look unique? Yeah, you, 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 uh, you're, you nailed it. It can be looked at as a total commodity, especially somebody who's making a decision in an office somewhere who's never even seen the property that you're talking about. Uh, you know, a lot of land, a lot of properties, particularly you know, in 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 Nashville, the market I was operating in, were owned by wealthy investors or conglomerates out of Chicago or New York. They'd never even been to these places, and so, but they're ultimately the ones that are that are making a decision. So you have to look for ways to separate yourself in a in a and a commoditized service like ours. And really it, it, it stemmed back from me having to sell my first commercial customer. It, 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 back in the days when I was just five or 10 people, I would still do sales. In fact, I would do sales out of the truck. I would be running a crew, two guys mowing, and I'd be making cold calls. And, uh, or, I'd, or I'd leave my, my crew working somewhere and I would run around and make, make cold visits. And uh, one of the first commercial clients I got was McDonald's. And it was a huge contract for us. It was 40 locations throughout uh, the Nashville, Tennessee area. And the thing that I was able to do to separate our service 
from the 20 other services that they could hire that were just like me was I said, listen, when we come to, to service the property every week, we're going to pick up every cigarette butt that is in the drive through Because you don't want your customer seeing that. If your customer looks down and, and at the drive through and they see that it's full of cigarette butts, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn them off. It's nasty. And if they see a nice, clean mulch bed there, they might, they might supersize the meal or they might add apple pie. And so I tried to figure out ways to, to, to say, listen, we're not cutting grass. We're making you more money. And that, that kind of uh, thesis carried, carried us on throughout the entire scope of that business was we're not in the, in the grass cutting business. We're in the, the partnership business where we figure out ways for our, our clientele to make more money. And, and hell, I mean, back then when we sold them, I was picking up cigarette butts. And, and eventually I bought a grabber. I didn't have to touch them. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've done that. And, 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 and all the way to the last day of running that business, we picked up every cigarette butt in the drive-thru of every fast food client that we had. And so trying to figure out ways to align what it is we sold and did to making our client more money was something that we, that we embedded in our sales process and also used as, as a differentiator. Because when you, when you change the conversation to go like that, for like an apartment manager, like how do we, how do we help you take your vacancy rate from 10% to five? Well, here's how we do it. We, we, we install better floral color at the leasing office. Where, where is the, uh, where is the, the, the show uh, apartment where you, where you take everybody through? Okay. So over here, here's a design for, for seasonal color to go there. And here's where we can make that corner of the complex look better. So when you walk your, prospective client or tenant through there you maybe your 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 close rate goes up by a percent let's try it you know talking about those things rather than hey we're the cheapest grass cutting service you can hire was a philosophy that that carried us throughout how we ran the business and how we sold new customers and how big did you get this company like in terms of revenue or number of employees whatever proxy you want to use for size yeah, it was 150 people, eight-figure business. Uh, it was one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, uh, still is. <laughs> and uh, when, it was, when it was acquired in 2013, that was the largest acquisition of that nature in the industry that year and probably for five years before that, too. It's wow. probably been eclipsed, and I know it has since then, but it was, you know, consolidation doesn't happen a whole lot in that industry. Uh, but but it... it, it, it it was a big deal in the industry when, when our company was bought. And, and in, my, in my town, in Nashville, I was the only, because uh, that's the dream of anybody that owns one of these businesses. And I was the only one that had gotten that kind of thing done for a decade. And no, no company had ever been bought uh, in our industry, in our, in our market. So that, that felt good, too, to be able to get it done because it Did, was hard. So you aspired to sell you never thought okay i'm gonna have this business and hand it to my kids or you know it, that was part of your long-term goal man I, I would love to tell you that i groomed this thing for acquisition from the start or even five years before it was bought you know built to sell love i love your book and i wish i had read it when i started that business or maybe even <laughs> midway would have helped me a lot in fact i didn't even read it until i was like in the trenches of selling this this business <laughs> and what I, what, I, what I realized was, oh, holy crap, I didn't build this company to sell. <laughs> you know? really? It's too late. Uh, uh, well, you know, and I mean, we had a lot of systems in place. And, and, and 
and it wasn't like it was, I mean, it got bought, right? So obviously it was, it was in such a way that it could be bought and, and, and bolted onto a bigger company. But I mean, if I had known all those things, I could have done a lot of things different. Interesting. Um, so I had made the decision, but from the time I made the decision that, listen, I have taken this company as far as I can. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on in technology right now. I want to explore those. I want to start a new business. From the time I made that decision to the time that I uh, sold that company was about a year and a half. And wow. a lot of that long time window with lag, I guess you could call it, would, was because my company was not prepared uh, hmm. for, in many ways. Uh, from a finan- from a, uh, just from an accounting standpoint, our, our financials were not in gap. Uh, gap and, being generally accepted accounting principles, that the, what accountants kind of speak about. Yep. First time I'd ever heard that term was when the CFO uh, for the company acquiring mine, $100 million plus outfit, acquiring my company, you know, I was like, are these in gap? And I, what is that? I didn't even know. And so, <laughs> you probably know that. <laughs> you know? And, so, uh, and so, there are a lot of things I had to learn on the fly selling that company that if I could have done it differently, could have done it in half the time, maybe even gotten more money for it. So, so let's go through, if we can, those 18 months. So, what... What did you do to, to really get the business kind of ready to sell? Like what were some of the changes you had to make, the tactical things that you, you did to, to get it ready to go to market? Yeah, hundreds, hundreds of things. The ones that stand out is I had to shift my thinking uh, to try to figure out a way to get this business to run without me. <laughs> and and uh, while I had tons of employees, mid-level managers, salespeople, you know, HR, I had, I, you know, I had all kinds of people around me. What I had learned was that this whole business was just basically scaffolding around me, and I was at the center. Take me out, the scaffolding collapses. And every day running that company was almost organized chaos. And it was me putting out fires all day, every day, six, seven days a week. And I just thought that was normal uh, for running a business of that size. And many times it is. But over time, I was able to, okay, how do I figure out how I never have to tell the lady that answers the phone the answer to this question ever again? And constantly, constantly going through those, those cycles of, okay, how do I remove myself from what kind of system or process can I put in place to remove myself from this? And a book that helped me was the four hour work week. Oh yeah. Splashy title, uh, total BS. You can't, you can't work four <laughs> hours a week and be successful. I don't think, uh, and I think Tim Ferriss probably believes that too, but the book is great because it yeah. helps you really think about how to streamline every little thing that you can. And, and that book helped me, uh, think through a lot of things. And, and so over time, I was able to do that and re- remove myself and just, just even stuff like, like cleaning up our customer relations uh, management software, our CRM. We had one, but it was, it was junk and not, all, not everybody was in there and we had to really you know, clean that up. A lot, of, a lot of stuff like that to get to groom the business that should have already been in place, but I was rushing to get it all cleaned up to get it sold. And so when you had some of those things done, what was the next step? Did you, did you take it to market yourself? Did you get approached? Like, how did you start to proactively sell it? Best decision I made was I worked with a broker that made his entire livelihood in my industry. 
So he, it was a boutique operation, him and a couple helpers. And he had made a name for himself in my industry in terms of blogging about it. And, and go ahead and uh, give him a shout out. What's his name? Um, Ron Edmond with, uh, Princeum group, Princeum uh, group, man, that was, so, that was six years ago. And I can still remember his name, Ron Edmond with the Princeum group. Fantastic. And, and he, he helped in terms of, of getting the business groomed because he's like, you know, you got to have X, Y, and Z. And, and, and uh, he, he did where he really shined was the interest uh, reaching out because he had the Rolodex and the interest generating the interest in the business. And so uh, he, he took us through the whole process, helped us get everything cleaned up, helped us uh, put, put the deck together. Uh, he put the deck together, but, but guided us through that. And then he did all of the outbound uh, outreach to, to get interested parties. And without him, we wouldn't have gotten a deal done. There's just no doubt so about it. What did you think the company was worth? Like, is he telling you kind of multiples of profit? He's managing he expectations, yeah. Uh, for us, the, at the time, Forex, EBITDA was, was uh, pretty standard. And that's what we were, that's what we were, uh, we were we were we were expecting as that's what we were you know that's what we were in the game for but as you as you pull all of this stuff together you understand that that's a sliding scale because there's a million ways to slice that and so where where if i could have done it differently i would have had a four to five year exit plan in place to where i would have i would have made those numbers look as good as I could. But there were some years that, uh, that, that I would run the business in such a way to not show a lot of profit. Uh, sure. Maybe I might buy a bunch of new equipment and, and, and 179 it or, or uh, what does it mean I, to 179? I'm not familiar with that, with that uh, expression. It means uh, like, let's say you buy uh, for us, one of the a big purchase we would make is like a $300,000 machine that blows uh, mulch everywhere buy that and you can expense it all the first year and that reduces your overall tax burden. Sure. Well, that doesn't make that year look too great. You know, sometimes, you know, like, uh, and so things like that, that if I had done things differently, um, uh, could have made the business look, uh, uh, and you know, more profitable than, than it, than it had been on that year. But I didn't have that. I didn't plan for five years to sell this business. The, the, uh, the notion kind of hit me out of nowhere. I, I had been doing it 15 years and it, I just felt like it was time to do something different with my life, to be honest. And, and so that cost me a lot in terms of the ultimate sale. If I had, if I spent four or five years doing it, I could have had a much better outcome. Hmm. Um, and so learning that, you know, as you go through and as you prepare your financials, you start to, you start to say, man, I wish I'd done that differently, you know, but you know, it's the first time I'd ever done anything like that. Yeah. 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 But that, that makes, that makes good sense. So, so Ron's out there sort of, uh, kind of marketing the business. Did you guys get, uh, do you guys get some letters of intent, some offers or what was the, what was yeah, the Yeah, We had, uh, five different groups signed <laughs> LOIs and of the five, four came and met with us at our facility and we pared that down to two, and then we ended up uh, engaging in um, oh, a letter of intent would be the first the first step. But then you you, you when you engage 
one buyer and you sign on the dotted line with them and they start due diligence. Um, we, you know, we, we made our decision to go with Lusa Holdings uh, because they just seemed like a better fit. Uh, they weren't the highest uh, bidder, but they seemed like a better fit in terms of for our culture. Culture was a big part of that business. The, the, the people that worked for me were my family. And so I really wanted to make sure those, those folks had the best opportunity going forward. And Lusa had that. They had a better culture in place than, than, than the other options. And Got as it, it turned so- out, that was the right call. Got it. Yeah, just the, the, some of the industry lingo. Letter of intent, it usually includes a no-shop clause where you sort of get engaged. You can't keep shopping the business to the rest. Whereas, yeah, right. indication of interest maybe is where they're Yeah, kind of IOIs. We had yeah. five of those, and then we signed one LOI uh, about two months later. Got it. Okay. And so um, what, was, what was your reaction to the IOIs? Like, in your mind... You're, you're kind of thinking four times EBITDA as a kind of the ballpark you're hearing in the industry. What did you, what, how was you, what was your reaction when you saw the four offers come through the four IOIs? Yeah. It, you know, I, uh, I got some good advice when I started the, the process was to manage my own psychology, uh, not to get too excited because these things change. Um, and, and not to get dollar signs in your, in your, in your eyes, you know, to really kind of just have a calm, um, outlook throughout the entire, the entire process. And so when I got those IOIs, some were, a couple were really low, almost insulting. Uh, but you know, didn't let that affect me. Um, and, and the two higher ones were kind of what I was expecting, uh, like from be big, be bigger, but they were kind of what I was expecting. And um, the, it, it, it wasn't a shock one way or the other in terms of like, oh, wow, I'm going to sell this company for this price. Awesome. It was, okay, I can accept this. Let's get it done. How were your assets treated? Because, because you had trucks and these leaf blowers that cost 300 grand. I mean, you, had, you had lots of equipment. Right. Um, you mentioned that the sort of going rate – is you know roughly four times, or that was what you were led to believe four times EBITDA. Is that plus this equipment, or is the equipment uh, sort of something you've got yeah. to hand over? Yeah, um, that was one of the surprising things uh, that that I kind of had to learn the hard way while going through this. So, the equipment for all practical purposes was just handed over. All any acquirer cared about was how much money do you make. And we're going to roll that through our formula. That's it. We really don't care about all the assets, fixed assets that you have. So in my head, I was like, man, you know, I've, I've got all of this, all of these, this, this, this money tied up in all these assets, but none of these guys really care about it. And I kept punching that up. Like, have you seen? <laughs> I got these things are 300 grand. You see how much, <laughs> how much metal we own around here? Like how much iron is in our yard? Like, have you seen it? Let me show it to you again. Give me the grand tour. Like literally like that, that was going through my mind. Cause I was so proud of this, this stuff, you know, like when you, when you're in construction and landscaping, a lot of times, man, you, you conflate success with how much crap you buy. And I've been guilty of that. And so uh, they didn't care. They didn't care that I had built this fleet of 80 trucks, all cash. They just looked at it like it was worn out junk because, and honestly, they, 
To them, it was because they sold all of it the, the day they bought it and put their own stuff in because they have a system. So that was humbling. But the way I reconciled it was, look, if you had a car note or a truck note or an equipment note on every one of these pieces of equipment, you wouldn't have a business to sell because whatever you're going to sell it for, you're just going to turn around and probably give half of it to the banks to pay all this crap off. And so that's the way I reconciled it was, man, you know, you, 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 you took 15 years to build this business and you did it all debt free. And it was because I took that path was, was why one of the main reasons why I had a business that I could sell. And, and it's, you know, I speculate that a lot of my competitors in, in, in this market and in this, in this industry couldn't sell their businesses because they had tons of debt. They might have a $5 million business or a $10 million business, but they got $10 million in debt. And the buyers don't assume that debt, not in our industry. Uh, that's, that's cleaned up at the sale. So that was the, what, how, I, how I made that, how I felt better about that in my head. But no, they didn't care a bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the difference between you know, an asset sale where you're selling just the stuff, the assets versus the goodwill that you're selling, right. uh, meaning a multiple of, of earnings in this case. Um, what was the most surprising thing for you in going through the next phase of the process? So from letter of intent where you sign saying, yep, to the actual check exchanging hands. Yeah, for me, it was how hard the due diligence process was. What made it hard? It, it was just like a, it was, it was more, 10 times harder than I thought it would be in terms of every I dotted and every T crossed. Now, it could be that the CFO for the company that bought my business was just a real, real thorough guy. And this could have been an edge case. But from what I hear, these guys are all pretty well the same. But this guy came in and sat in our office for, for a month and, and just poured over documents, poured over the financials, poured over every – left no stone unturned and looked at every corner of the business. Um, I mean, one, I remember one night we were in the office till like 1130 at night looking for a canceled check because he had to verify that a bill was paid and he needed to look at the canceled check. Like, like, and we couldn't find the check. And we, and we spent uh, two hours looking for a check that was, was like for a few hundred bucks. So there was just tons of that. Now it could be this guy was overly zealous about his job, but he, he did a really good job in terms of the due diligence, which made it really difficult for us and not fun. And in, in retrospect, having a few years under the bridge, do, do you think that was an attempt to what industry people call retrade, meaning manufa manufacture things that so they could kind of justify lowering the price? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, was, a, that was a tactic, and, and that did happen uh, all the way up until midnight of the closing date. And we almost walked away from the deal because there was – there were a few sliding scales in terms of how much we had an accounts receivable, how much accounts payable had been uh, cleared, uh, all sorts of fluid parts to the deal that, that were argued about, 
all the way up until midnight of, of, of the drop dead date. And uh, most stressful and difficult thing I've ever been a part of. Got it done. But uh, yeah, that happened. And what advice would you have for a, a fellow entrepreneur about to go through the process of selling their company? Uh, it set expectations better. Don't start this process until you are in a, uh, you're in a better position in terms of selling the business or continuing it on. If you are selling the business and, and you have made up your mind, that's all you want to do, then you're going to be in a very disadvantaged position in, in, in every phase of the deal, of the process. From ter in terms of up, upfront negotiations to all of the retrading that goes on during due diligence, you're going to be at a, at a disadvantage because you're not willing to walk away. And so you have to start this business, this, this process to where I'm, I'm doing well, business is crushing it, uh, I'm making money, uh, I enjoy doing it, but you know, maybe I might sell it. Let's see what happens. And at the end of the process, you're happy if you do, you're happy if you don't. That's the best place to be when you start this process because if you're married to the notion of getting it sold, uh, you're going to be in a tough spot uh, when it comes to all facets of the negotiation of it. That's, that, was my, that was my experience anyway. I really wanted to get that deal done, and so I buckled a lot when I shouldn't have. That's really important advice. and It, it does sound like you were – at least, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it feels like you, you had sort of got to the point where you were done. You wanted to move right. on. You had other things you wanted to go do. If I had to go back and run the business and if it, did, if it didn't materialize, then fine, but I wouldn't have been happy about it. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that, they, and I think experienced negotiators, they do this a hundred times more than you do. Experienced negotiators smell that and they will make you pay for it. And so that's my advice. Spend, first off, spend a year, two years, three years getting ready for this. Start in a healthy position. Start in, a, in, a, in an equitable position to where you're fine if it happens, fine if it doesn't. And then do the, do the journey. Yeah, great. Great advice because um, you've now got a do-over. So tell me a little bit about the new business, Green Pal, because yeah. this is a cool business. Took everything I learned 15 years in the landscaping maintenance business and applied it to technology. And so GreenPal is the Uber for lawn mowing. Homeowner needs their grass cut. They just jump on the app or the website. They get five quotes back in 60 seconds. They hire the lawn care service they want to work with. They read reviews. They can see all kinds of data about the, the lawn businesses they choose from. Lawn company comes out and mows it, pay them right through the app. And so oh, it's so everything cool. I saw that was wrong with the industry from being in it my entire life and applied it to an app that can make it so much easier for people that need the service and for, for your smaller operators that make their living in this industry. I love that business idea. It's, it's <laughs> great. I, uh, cause I'm in the camp, so I've got kids and sometimes I convince them to cut the lawn. Other times I don't, <laughs> other yeah, times I do right? it. And the idea of, of being able to just go on an app, I think. That's yeah. Cool. What did you, you do? Well, so I was going to say, what did, you, what did you have to drop to build the app? Like, how much are we talking? Is this thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? So, so in 2014, uh, when, when I was part of a team building it, uh, none of us knew any, the first thing about technology. None of us knew about how to build software, how to design software. 
everything I had done up until that point was blue collar entrepreneur. And I underestimated how difficult, how different being a tech-based company is from a traditional company. It's, it's just the worlds are totally different. And so the first uh, version of the app, we paid a shop to build it. Uh, it was 120 grand. And within six months, we had to scrap it. Oh, no. <laughs> it was a total piece of crap. <laughs> it, it was buggy. It didn't work. It was confusing. Nobody knew how to use it. Uh, oh, no. We only had a handful of, of users uh, after a year. Total disaster. And so it was basically a $120,000 lesson that we had to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And so luckily I had two co-founders. We were able to retool understand, and, and really educate ourselves on how to build software, how to design software, and how to, and how to do that the correct way. And over the course of the year after that, we released the second version that we built, and we had much better footing to, to grow hmm. and, 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 and build off of that. And what are the biggest differences between running a technology company versus a, a as you say, blue collar uh, business? What, what, yeah. What do you see as the biggest differences? Tons of differences. One, um, there's no, so when you're running, when you're inventing a new product, which is basically what green pal is, didn't exist. Um, you're inventing something that didn't exist and, and, and bringing it to life. There is no, no playbook. There is no, uh, game plan that you can rob and steal from for what you're doing. So you have to figure it out as you go through a very iterative process. You're mm. trying things. It doesn't work over and over and over again until you kind of find the way. Uh, one of the things I did when I was building my first company was I, I would go to trade shows I, and, and I, would, I, would try to, I would try to meet with the largest landscaping company in that city and tour their facility. And they oftentimes would let me. And so I was able to look at that and say, okay, this is it's a $40 million operation. Look at the things they're doing. Oh, man, that's a great idea. And, and, and port those to my, my business. When you're starting a, when you're inventing a new technology product, there really isn't that, that analogy. There isn't, there isn't that, that similar thing that you can pull from. And so for us, for me, that was one of the surprising things. Like I had in my head when we first started, this is what it is. We'll just build it and we'll be done. Here we are six, seven years in. It's, and what you come to find out is it's never done. It's, you're always making it better. You're always learning new things. You're always putting in new features. You're always building on it. So that's one of the things that makes it more challenging. Uh, but also, in a way, kind of makes it uh, easier in a way because every problem you, you have can be solved with technology. So when I was running my, my traditional analog business, there was just a lot of problems that couldn't be solved through any other way but hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, just getting in the trenches and getting your hands on it. You know, a truck has literally gone off the road and it's two feet from a riverbank and it's about to go in the river. <laughs> How do you deal with that problem? There's no technology that's going to solve that problem. Uh, fast forward to my business now, almost every problem we face, there is a technological solution that we can do to fix <laughs> it to where it doesn't ever happen again. And so that's one of the big differences that makes it easier in a way, but also harder in terms of inventing the, the game plan as you, as you go. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, I, I, I wish you all the best with GreenPal. I think it's an amazing uh, app. Where, where can people, uh, two things I'd love to wrap up with. Number one, where can people find out about GreenPal? I'm, I'm assuming the App Store, but tell me otherwise. App Store, uh, and yeah, then, search it in either App Store or GreenPal. And then the website, yourgreenpal.com. You want to email me? My name is Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at yourgreenpal.com. Awesome. Okay. Well, that, that, uh, that knocks it out of the park. So the app is called GreenPal, uh, Google Play or the App Store. Right. And uh, you've been kind enough to give your email address. Brian, it's been great. I really appreciate you sharing with so much candor. It's a awesome. great interview. Thank I've you. I've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.